0: Coolia.ma is a multi-award winning marketing automation and personalization platform that improves your client acquisition, conversion and retention rates. Coolia makes your agency more efficient through automating your comms and prospecting activity and provides you with a wealth of additional chargeable client services. To find out more, head over to coolia.ma. My extra special guest this week is Nick Cook. He is the co-founder of The Goat. They are the fourth fastest growing agency in the world, as named by Adweek in 2019. 20 million turnover, 120 employees, and the average age of everyone is just 24 years old. Nick is one of the ancient ones at 30. And if you are remotely interested in influencer marketing, social media, platform trends, agency growth, creating campaigns that deliver tremendous value for your clients. This is an absolute masterclass in all of that. They are really living the dream of so many agency founders. They start an agency on a shoestring, start sharing a co-working space, and in four years grow it to 20 million in revenue, 120 employees, and have clients like FIFA and Uber. Nick tells a story of how they won their first few clients, New Look, and how they achieved certain milestones which propelled their growth and then how they grew those accounts. Um, They really caught the crest of a wave when it came, came to influencer marketing. We go really deep into the weeds about what's happening there at the moment and sort of where influencer marketing is going. We discuss the massive shift in attention and budgets from TV to social uh we talk about where we are with social media platforms right now how worried instagram is about platforms like tiktok i'm i'm just gonna stop talking now and just say without me keeping you in suspense any further my conversation with nick cook Nick Cook is the co-founder of The Goat, the best influencer marketing agency in the world. The Goat is a global agency with offices in London, New York and Singapore with an average age of 24. Their team of disruptors run campaigns for the likes of FIFA, Pernod Ricard, Uber, Nivea and more. Their award-winning campaigns are performance-driven as they guarantee results for every campaign. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Nick Cook, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Morning. Thanks for having me on. Great stuff. Morning. You are in New York as we're recording this right now, aren't you?
1: I am. It's New York, and it's nine a.m. But um, yeah, very excited to, to sit down and um, hopefully share some useful insights.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for for being on the show. You've you've got a fascinating background. After leaving university, you met a consultant and a coach who was doing some work, um, some workshops with some really interesting brands. And you were responsible for doing sales and new business for her. How has that grounding in sales
1: informed the way that you operate as an agency owner today? I think completely, really. I mean, um, I think it's useful for any, any entrepreneur to have some kind of sales background. Um, obviously, increasingly, a lot have a tech background at the moment. But I think for us, it's been integral, especially in an agency world where, on the one hand, you need to have a service, you know, you're good at delivering. But then agencies really are kind of sales businesses. So as long as you're winning enough work um, and delivering it um, to a a reasonable extent, then you're going to grow pretty quickly. Hmm. So I had a really um, kind of interesting two years working for this inspirational, I guess she was a life coach. Hmm. I left university and I joined didn't a week's internship and she ended up um, hiring me and I ended up running the kind of B2B side of her business. And yeah, it was typical kind of cold calling um, working with the sales CRM picking up the phone um, hassling people until they so <laughs> they her initially and then me eventually um, and so I think now the way that we run um, go it, it's kind of any sales focused business needs to be um, needs to be run in the same way where you've got a sales team who have clear kind of targets and um, and you can kind of you really clearly understand the funnel and the process mm-hmm. of direction all the way through to Obviously winning work, but then I guess the bigger we've got, the focus has shifted more onto delivering amazing value and amazing campaigns for our clients because the majority of our revenue now comes from um, kind of repeat work from existing clients. So yeah, the focus is still business development is absolutely integral, but Mm -hmm. the percentage of kind of, I guess, upselling within that business development portion has has become more and more important. Hmm.
0: Makes sense. So you met Harry and Aaron, the two other co-founders when you worked for a company called Sport Lobster. Tell us the story of how the GOAT came to be.
1: Yeah, so um, I really wanted to work in, in the sports industry. And for a long time, I thought it's, you know, everyone wants to work in the sports industry. I'm never going to get a job. I won't bother applying for one. And then um, I heard about this startup that had just launched called Sport Lobster, hmm. which was a sports social networking platform based out of of london and i found out the email address of one of the co-founders they only had two employees at the time but i met him for a coffee um, we got on pretty well uh, and eventually he offered me uh, an unpaid internship so i was leaving a um you know a full-time job um with this life coaching consultancy um, and kind of jumped ship and, and really went for it and um Luckily, the business raised quite a bit of money, around $15 million over the next few years. And Mm. I progressed well with the business, ended up managing a marketing team of about 15, 16 people. um, And I guess Goat was born out of that business um, almost by mistake. So Aaron Shepard and Harry Hugo are my co-founders at Goat. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Aaron was the co-founder of Sport Lobster, who interviewed me and hired me. And Harry was the head of social, and I ended up being the head of marketing. So. It, it, it was an interesting, I think it's quite an unusual story in that we all managed each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, we weren't friends initially. It was a pretty, you know, <laughs> brutal, fast-paced startup mm-hmm. environment. And so we learned a lot about each other. Um, and really, it was Harry and I who, our role was was delivering value and ROI in terms of kind of, um, you know, down funnel metrics. So it was an app. Um, a mobile app product so everything was around mobile app acquisition and install and then registration mm-hmm. we were really hustling and trying to find ways to deliver those numbers um while aaron was obviously running the business and, and calling us into his his um, his office and, and kind of um castigating us for not <laughs> getting the numbers, not performing right yeah, exactly so overall though it was a big success we drove two million app installs in the first two years nice and then um we, we did everything from, we had Cristiano Ronaldo as an ambassador there, and he was the most followed man on the planet on social media and still is. He still is, so we got yeah. him on board, we thought, you know, this is it. We've made it. It's going to, you know, mm. break the internet, and we're all going to be sitting on an island in a few years. Right, <laughs> sail off sail into the sunset. Exactly, and actually what happened was um, he drove a lot of installs initially, mm. and then it really tailed off and didn't really drive much, much value. And it was kind of a learning in that celebrity talent um, when being used, I guess, as influencers don't drive great value and don't drive a great kind of pure digital ROI. And what we realized was that some people in our marketing team were at that point football bloggers in the UK. So they had, I don't know, for example, one guy had a Liverpool fan page with a hundred thousand followers. Right. And we basically, we paid him about 20 pounds um, so about twenty five dollars at that point, and um, told him to put a link in a, a tweet and just direct his users to to the app and mm-hmm. we saw how many fix we got and how many app installs we got mm-hmm. and What we were amazed to see was that it it drove in terms of a cost per install it drove the best cost per install of anything we 'd done hmm. and it drove something like a thousand installs the first tweet he did or something insane so we were we were shocked and we we tried to scale it and realized quickly that a lot of influencers. Um, a lot of, I guess, football fan pages didn't drive amazing value, but the best performing ones drove insane value. And as I kind of merged cost per Install, it was our best performing channel by quite a distance. So then we, we built an internal team. This was about seven years ago, so probably in about 2012. Hmm. We built an internal team whose sole job was just to reach out and build a network of, of these fan pages to the point that we... We had the biggest network of sports fan influencers in the world, and we were putting a decent chunk of our budget into this channel sure and really just collecting a a, a wide variety of um, of data across different data points and story and and learning why different pages would work and why some didn 't and you know it was a particular time of day best to post hmm. it was a different messaging type or mechanic <clears throat> super effective um, and then eventually we realized that. The opportunity was so big and and we had this vision that maybe this could work across other industries um, to the point that we decided to, to step away from that business uh, four years ago and, and start Goat uh, to run these performance campaigns um, for other brands. Wow, that's a fascinating story. So
0: take us back to the beginning then when the three of you started. What did the first 12 months look like? How did you win your first clients? Were you self-funded? Yeah. <coughs>
1: Yeah. Um, so initially, we, we weren't funded at all um, for the first kind of year and a half. What we did, it was just the three of us with laptops. So we went to a co working space, we sat down, we had no overheads, and um, we had a, a sports gaming client mm-hmm. um, who wanted to work with us. They gave us £5,000 one weekend and said, Look, see how many um, deposits you can get on my product.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we We did a campaign. Basically, it was a product called Predict the Six, which um, was run by a a sole entrepreneur in in Liverpool. He didn't have a huge amount of money, but um, he'd seen the work we were doing at Sportlobster and then kind of trusted us. And the product was basically a really simple uh, mechanic where you put one pound into the game and you pick your six Premier League goal scorers that weekend. Hmm. They all scored then you won £10,000. So, very simple product. Um, And... Essentially, we spent this five thousand pounds. Realised that for every pound he was giving us, we were making him a pound fifty back. And and luckily, no one won the jackpot for the first (laughs) few weeks, which helped. Um, And so the next weekend, he put ten thousand in, and then fifteen thousand in the following weekend. And suddenly, we had a business. Um, And we we kind of focused on that one client. How quickly can we scale this? Like, when is the ceiling? When when are the numbers going to drop off? Mm. At the moment, he's basically printing money. Um, and then we started working with, with a few other um, kind of major gambling operators, uh, sports sponsors. Uh, we got quite a bit of work from other, um, other agencies. Um, and that will happen in the first couple of months, really. And then we h- hired our first person, who Frankie Hobbs, who's still our global head of campaigns. He actually came from Sport Lobster. He was, um, he was 21 at the time. Mm-hmm. 24 now. And um, I guess... Um, also interesting is the fact that Harry, um, Harry Hugo, one of my business partners, is still 24. So he was 20 at the time, um, and so yeah, we were just sitting in a co-worker space. And I guess that we started hiring um, as the revenue kept dripping in. We sure. didn't really know how to, you know, manage the books or anything. So I was doing all the finances for the first year, mm. um, <laughs> which was a steep learning curve. Right. So we were kind of fudging everything together, mm. and then. I guess all agencies, you look at the, the sort of the cycle of growth and there have been a few big client wins that have sort of dictated um, our growth. And one of them, we were invited to pitch to new look, the fashion brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was an amazing woman who, who doesn't work there anymore called Cass who invited us in to pitch. And she said, look, we, we want to move um, slightly away from retail. We want to focus more on e-commerce to identify that all the fastest growing companies in our space, are obviously fast fashion e-commerce giants like sure. the ASOS. Sure. And so they wanted to set up an influencer program um, and it was a million pound brief. Um, and for us at the time, that was you know, insane money. And um, we'd only run sports campaigns and we were a group of, you know, five blokes who loved sports sitting in a room. And we went in and met her and she, she really believed in, in what we were doing and she believed in our ability to um, take what we were doing and, and run a successful campaign in the mm. fashion space. Um, and there weren't really many influencer agencies around at that point, if any. So it wasn't, you know, she'd been meeting a lot of potential agencies who could do it, but no one really could. So um, we ended up winning that brief, winning that pitch. This is
0: 2016?
1: Um, 2015? yeah, probably 2015, actually. Mm. You know, yeah, early 2016. Right. And we ended up winning it. And it's one of those where you kind of win it and you think, Wow! We <laughs> now have to now. Right. How <laughs> do we do this? Yeah. So we, <clears throat> we actually hired a few people. Who Huge win, experience.
0: massive win. That must've, yeah, that, that changed yeah. everything for you
1: really. Yeah, and we, It changed our perspective as well. And it made us realize that, you know, if we can win a few of these a year, even then, mm. you know, we can grow the team significantly. Mm-hmm. So we hired, um, some people with, uh, I guess, experience in the fashion space, not really in the infant space because no one really had much experience at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we actually delivered it incredibly successfully to the point that, you know, they're a client of ours three years later. Um, and, and then I guess another, another good example or lesson for how we grew quickly is that they then called us and said, we, do you know anyone who, who manages social media? Because our social in, in France and Germany is is not great and we want someone to manage it. Mm-hmm. Um, we basically said, look, we can do that for you. We, we've got a lot of experience in managing social Sent us a brief for that, and we ended up doing that as well. So for two years ago, we social media, and we didn't have any French speakers or German speakers. Right. We we hired them. We were transparent about that. Sure. And we delivered some great work. And sure. That was that was what kind of really kickstarted it. And then from there, we kind of restructured the whole business and built out divisions and um, which specialized in different verticals. So fashion was one. We then built out a lifestyle team. Sport obviously was really strong. Right. Now we're doing everything from gaming to tech to, you know, parent focused campaigns, student yeah. campaigns across um, across, you know, proper global markets and a much bigger budget.
0: Phenomenal. It's an amazing story. So and I mentioned at the top of the program that you're roughly 120 people now. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So 120 between we have offices in um, New York, which I'm heading up at the moment, uh, right. London and Singapore. Okay.
0: So phenomenal growth over a sort of a four year period of time, four or five years really. So twenty fifteen, it was just the three of you roughly, and then in twenty sixteen, maybe at back end of twenty fifteen, you won New Look as a client. Talk us through sort of the growth journey, twenty fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, in terms of people, revenue, if you can go into that, just high level numbers.
1: So it was it was pretty steep. We've seen, um, I mean, we're doing 20 million plus revenue um, across 2019, so it kind of gives you a good mm-hmm. age of, of that that steep curve. Um, in terms of kind of the fastest growing agencies, um, globally, we've just named fourth um, fourth fastest growing agency across the board by Adweek in 2019, which was phenomenal. I think that kind of that kind of um, recognition shows us how quickly we're growing. We weren't really, mm-hmm. or if we were growing faster than other agencies, a lot, uh, you know. Initially, certainly over the first couple of years, we were just focusing on, you know, the fact we had to hire people to deliver the work we were winning. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was um, we we hired Frankie initially, then we hired a team around the New Look campaign. We hired our first designer, um, Emily Hall, who was 21 at the time and has now progressed and, and kind of moved from that design role through to heading up all of our kind of lifestyle campaign delivery. And she manages a team of about 16, 17 people now. She's still only about 24. So so that's interesting. So like all of you are roughly around 20, the average age of the company is 24
0: years old. Is that yeah. a deliberate decision?
1: No, not initially. So Aaron, um, of the three co-founders, Aaron is 32, I'm 30, and Harry's 24. Oh, old, 32. Wow. Yeah, He's, really like, he's getting on. <laughs> Um, and really, it was it was kind of a necessity initially. A lot of the people we hired at first were uh, people who we knew had to really understand social, and hopefully understand the influencer world. So we found that when interviewing, a lot of those people happened to be people who just left university or been in a job for a couple of years and no more. Partly because we didn't want to hire people who'd been at big established agencies for you know five, ten years. We found that when we did hire people they had a kind of specific way of doing things yeah. and that they were doing things in quite a traditional way and yeah. we were I think a real advantage to what we were about and still are about is that we're not agency people none of the three of us have, have worked at an agency before of any kind so hmm. we just kind of made it up as we were going and we structured the the company in the way we did work in a way that we would wanted the agencies we work with at Sport Lobster to do things and so um, in doing that we ended up just hiring talented young people and kind of teaching them in the way that we had kind of taught ourselves and the way we thought things should operate. And, um, and obviously now we've got, you know, a senior management team, um, which is a mix of our best people from when we were back then and more experienced people we brought in, you know, obviously we've got a CFO who's, you know, who's done this before and been at KPMG for 15 years, but, um, that has been one of the big challenges, how to, um, and that's probably been a challenge in the last 12 months and not really before where we've been like, you know, we've got 80 people and, you know, pretty much everyone is under the age of 27, 28 right. um, to the point that, okay, now we've got global offices and, you know, we're in all agency meetings with, you know, six other agencies for, you know, our big 15 biggest clients and, how do we make sure we we're kind of owning those situations and um, and maintaining the fact that we're not going to copy the other agencies we're going to do things our way Mm -hmm. um, and finding that balance has been um, I think one of the reasons why we've been successful.
0: Hmm. One of the things that I hear from founders that grow companies relatively quickly is that they struggle to sort of get to grips with the pace of change, um, because it's moved from a point where maybe you knew the faces and the names of all of the employees, you were, you were right next to them, and you knew about their lives and their personal circumstances. And then it gets to a stage where you start to not recognize people that are working in your company. And that has been quite unsettling to a lot of people that I've spoken to, and a lot of people that I've I've heard of. How How have you adjusted to that rapid growth you know 120 plus people how have you been able to kind of make that adjustment and how how have you built a culture and maintained that culture with a company that is growing as fast as it has
1: it's interesting i think that question uh, kind of goes hand in hand with us becoming a, a global agency as well i moved over here from to, to new york from london uh, in june 2018 so i've been here for about a year and a half and in doing so Obviously, since I've moved, the UK UK is our global HQ, um, and we've got around about ninety five people in that office. And there are a lot of people there that I don't know particularly well, <clears throat> just because since they've joined since I've moved since I moved over here. And I'm the kind of US is my baby, and obviously um, you've got a relatively small team compared to that here, which is mm-hmm. growing, but everyone knows each other and we're very close. And the same with Singapore. I think the challenge for me is understanding and making sure I'm aware of who everyone is in the UK and maintaining relationships. Making sure that every time I go back, it's not a kind of you know awkward one around the office for the first sure. half an hour saying, Hi. Who, "Who's this guy?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then obviously, I think Aaron and Harry are really, you know, we're not at the set the size yet where in the UK, you mm. know, people that know who each other are. Everyone is still very close, and I think we're <clears throat> we're very good at. Maintaining a culture and making sure that um, making sure that we have fun, but that delivering good work and not allowing things to slip. Um, like we're very good at kind of reminding people that we're the best in, in our field, and there's a reason mm-hmm. why we maintain that, why we, we are in the we're in. Mm-hmm. But it's a fast-growing industry, and there are a lot of other competitors and challenger agencies who are springing up all over the place, and so. Mm. Our mission is to make sure that we keep spearheading things and, and kind of innovating and, and, and staying ahead of the pack. Um, I think culturally, we've, we've we, what we have realized recently is that on a global level, one of the real challenges and probably failures, to be honest, is that we haven't been great at maintaining kind of a consistent culture across all the offices. Maybe it's not cultural consistency, but a um, kind of making sure that things we do well or things that haven't worked, being communicated sure. across the offices and, right. and, for example, James who heads up our Singapore office, Aaron's just come back from Singapore and that was one of the key learnings: is you know, are we communicating everything in the right way, and um, is knowledge being shared quickly yeah. enough and, and being used uh, across the business? Hmm.
0: So, hmm. so talk about talk about the three personalities. So yourself, Harry, and Aaron. What are their personalities like? What are they? What are they responsible for? And you mentioned also that you have you have a culture of sort of holding each other accountable and being quite brutal in the way that you do that. So mm-hmm. just talk about the three of you as
1: as co-founders. How is that working? Yeah, I'm not sure if "brutal" is the right word, but yeah, <laughs> we um, we we have very kind of distinct roles, which I think has has been beneficial. Mm. When it was just the three of us with laptops and a, a shared working space. The kind of roles were I would go out, I would network, I would build relationships with people, I'd find leads, get briefs. Um, we'd kind of collectively sit down and go through what we thought we should pitch. A lot of that came from Harry. Harry is the sort of social media whiz kid who understands social uh, platforms, the influencer world, inside out. He's on the cutting edge of you know what works, what doesn't work what kind of campaign mechanic and creative within the influencer world is going to be effective. Mm -hmm. So he would predominantly come up with what it was that we would pitch. And then I would basically turn it into a proposal and then Aaron would lead the actual pitch and do the sort of more top level. This is who we are. This is why we're great. This is why you should work with us. And then we would win it hopefully. And then Harry would essentially be given the campaign to run. Um, And then as we've grown the business, the three of us have maintained those roles really. Okay. And we still, each of us hold each other accountable for those um, parts of the business. Mm. So yeah, Harry still heads up kind of, I guess, global campaign delivery, although mm. Frankie, um, Frankie's head of global campaigns underneath him. Mm. Um, my role slightly shifted in that I obviously have moved to the US. So as well as making sure that sort of global client services and, 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 um, Yes, Lee, Jen, and new business is all going well. I'm I'm heading up the US as a whole. Sure. And then Aaron is is very much kind of global top level, um, you know, leading the bigger pitches and focusing around things like, you know, investment and finances and P and L and and uh, more that kind of top level um, stuff from the kind it of off- the perspective. So, so I guess br- wrong
0: choice of words when I use brutal. I guess what I meant to say was more honest because I think yeah. in the pre-interview you, I think you have a WhatsApp group um, where you, I guess you just hold everyone accountable. All three of you, 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 you hold each other accountable to your numbers, and I think that permeates across the rest of the organization. Am I right in saying that?
1: Yeah, I think that would be that would be fair to say. I think I think the the real accountability which we try and hold strong is our senior managers. So we we have an amazing group of senior managers who, as I say, some of whom have come through the business from joining us as grads, essentially, and some have come with a bit more experience. But um, similar to our positions um, in which we're accountable to each other for, um, we have very clear kind of um, areas of the business that they are accountable for. And so I think what comes with being in that senior role is that you know you you are as a co-founder you're able to hold those people account in a different way um and then you trust that those people are going to hold their teams to account on a kind of team but also individual level um i think the 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 key thing there is that we we do set very clear goals and we know what success means each month and each quarter um it doesn't mean that you know there's a there's a brutal culture throughout the business. I think Mm -hmm. it's actually a very uh, kind of enjoyable, lighthearted, fun place to work because shouldn't it be? We're all kind of young people and it's fast paced and we're doing great campaigns. Sure. But, you know, I think the key thing really is that we want our senior managers to protect the people they work with and be accountable for those people. Like we've had occasions where senior managers have come to us and said, Oh, but that happened because this person in my team didn't do it. And I think what's really important is that we don't, allow that you know they are responsible for that team and they should take responsibility for what their team does mm-hmm. and same way if something in the u.s as a whole um, happens that um you know is is questionable then absolutely i'm responsible for that and i will take responsibility for that mm. um and i think i think that operating in that way has been really um really helpful and it kind of cuts out any uh, any excuses and people then deal with stuff quicker and make sure, I think it it prevents any issues from kind of permeating and and not being sorted quickly because people can be called out and and we don't accept it if they say, Oh, but it's someone else.
0: Sure. Makes, makes complete sense. So, okay. So four years in 20 million in revenue, 120 employees, uh, FIFA and uh, Pernod Ricard as, as clients, it's all easy now right the hard part is over
1: Uh, (laughs) If only what do you worry
0: what do you worry about now
1: well i think it depends on what you want from your business i think um you know entrepreneurs build businesses for different reasons some build lifestyle businesses where they can have a small team and they know they're going to make enough money to be happy we we went into this business i guess without really knowing what the opportunity was and where we wanted to end up, but quite quickly it became apparent that our market is in the very early stages, but Mm -hmm. it's growing very quickly. Mm -hmm. So our mission became like, let's let's own and win this race to the bottom in terms of the influencer market. Um, Initially in the UK and now um, obviously in the US and, and globally, we're kind of, and then I guess what we realized is that the sort of agency, big agency structure is, is an interesting one. And the big media agencies are not delivering great value. And, you know, they're being called out by a lot of clients and and within the industry. And there's a big opportunity to disrupt that kind of media landscape. And if you look at the numbers, people are moving away from consumers aren't watching TV. They're 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 spending three, four hours a day on average on social. And that number is increasing. And marketing and advertising budgets are not shifting as quickly as they should be from tv to social um most in in line with the growth of the usage of those channels yeah yeah exactly um and most big brands are are spending money on linear tv campaigns they're creating you know one creative and they're creating tv formatting content and they're distributing that across channels and thinking it's going to work sure Uh, that is an outdated way of doing things and we are seeing the opportunity as Um, As budgets and as, as I guess, money shifts towards social, um, some brands are doing it right and they're seeing the opportunity and they're shifting towards social and influencer-first strategies and they are winning within their categories. Um, You look at someone like Gymshark or you look at the ASOS or the Boohoo's or Estee Lauder who are spending 70% of their overall global um, marketing budget across all channels is going towards influencers. And those guys are all seeing the benefits. It's going to come. It's not happening. Sure. And so, what we're doing is, um, we've become more of a social agency. We're doing everything from paid social to social media management. to, You know, produce video content. But really, what we what we do is understand that there's a need for niche content being distributed um, to niche communities at scale. So, rather than creating one piece of content and expecting it to work for everyone, you need to use influencers and creators who represent your target market to create content is based around use cases and personal storytelling techniques, and then distribute that content across not only the inferences specific channels, but you know, across, um, your brand, social channels, across your paid social channels. Um, when we're looking at pure performance, it, it should drive better. Um, you know, ROI cost per acquisitions. um, Give us an example. Yeah. So, um, I guess, there's quite a few examples. One example in the U.S. at the moment is a brand called Makari, which mm-hmm. is a, japanese, um, a Japanese-owned japanese company, enormous company in Japan, kind of household name. And they've got about 250 employees in the U.S. Um, based out of um, Silicon Valley. And really, it's a marketplace for buying and selling your, your products. So it's kind of an, an Instagram-style UI. Um, and what we do for them is um, there's kind of a brand-building element, but what we've done is proven that we can we can deliver incredible performance focused results. So this is a typical kind of campaign for us. We they've been creating, as I say, kind of more linear, um, linear content, and they run a lot of TV campaigns.
0: What we've come in
1: is and done is use our data in our CRM system to identify the right kind of influencer communities for their products, and then the, the right influencers who are going to deliver value. And we use influencers who actually use the product and they buy and they sell Um, anything clothes furniture technology technical technology products on the app and they create content around it in a very authentic way and what we've done is we've seen that organically that content drives an okay cost per install cost per registration Um, we look at things like day three and day seven uh, retention on the product sure but when we put paid ad spend behind um that content especially the instagram story content it drives a better cost for registration than anything else they're doing so um that is a typical campaign for us we, you know they they're actually a brand that do understand social and they're doing a lot of things right but right. we've been able to go in and use our insights and our technology and and also they've given us the opportunity to kind of test and learn with an initial uh, budget but now you know obviously it's if we're outperforming other channels, it's a case of, right, how quickly can we scale this and and how big can this go? So that's uh, that just represents one example of the kind of campaigns we run. Um, and, and as I say, they range from very kind of sort of brand-focused metrics all the way through to pure down-funnel acquisition metrics like that. The reason why most
0: agencies fail to hit their revenue goal or reach their potential is not because the business development team don't pitch well or they don't offer valuable insight to the prospect or they don't have excellent ideas and creative. It's rarely because they lack talent and capability. The reason most agencies are not hitting their number is because their pipelines are too small because they've not been prospecting. They don't have a proactive approach to business development. There are still far too many agencies sitting and waiting for the phone to ring, sitting and waiting for RFPs instead of getting their value proposition in front of the buyer, and creating the case for change. Now, after interviewing over 40 world-class sales and marketing leaders from Jill Conrath, Anthony Reno, Jeb Blunt, and Brent Adamson, I'm running a small group coaching session in January in Birmingham which outlines our approach called proactive prospecting. The process creates a predictable pipeline of new business opportunities by creating the case for change with your buyer, using multiple touches from email, social, the phone, DM, and much more. It's the approach that I've used over the years to generate millions in new business revenue for agencies that I've worked with. If you're interested, drop me a line at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Really interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about influencer marketing specifically, because I guess... I, I think the value, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I'm clearly not an expert in this space, but I think the value of the influencer in the first place is that of authority, right? So, uh, you know, an actual user of the product having a really good experience and then taking talking about that experience with people that they have a relationship with online about the experiences that they love. But recently, we've sort of seen something a little bit different with influencers. We've seen the sense that we're getting the sense that influencers are promoting products that they don't necessarily use themselves, or maybe they're, they're not using the, their own accounts. They're not personal ones. So, Which has led to some skepticism around uh, the, sort of the credibility of the marketing channel as a whole. Talk a little bit about that, if, if you can.
1: Absolutely. So there's been... Yeah, I guess as the market's grown, um, the number, the volume of influencers um, available for brands to consider has grown enormously. And so there's a lot of, I guess it's always been quite a, a kind of unregulated market because it's mm-hmm. nowhere. So when we started four years ago, we didn't have to use hashtag ads on any content. There was no mm-hmm. um, And kind of a game was about tricking consumers, I guess, into thinking that the influencer really loved this product. And it sure. was because... They, they could post about it in a really authentic way. And now the, the regulation around the industry has changed massively and the way consumers consume influencer content has changed. And so even though now you have to declare it's an ad, the, the impact hasn't really declined for the most part if you're using the right influencers at the right time huh. and the content feels natural still. And you're not trying to dupe consumers. Consumers know when it's a sponsored post if you put sponsored or not, right? And people still don't put sponsored, but as long as it's the right product for that audience and it's a product the influencer would actually use, Mm -hmm. we actually see you get, you know, very little negative feedback and the conversion numbers are still very high. As the market's grown though, what's happened is that obviously there are a lot of influencers who um, are trying to make a quick buck and Mm -hmm. uh, doing this as a kind of viable long-term full-time business. And so, being able to understand which influencers are the right ones to use is obviously at the core of, of what brands need to be doing and what we do. And that can be, um, that can be done across a number of um, different kind of key metrics. So um, one is obviously matching that product and that brand to an influencer. And we actually see that a lot of influencers turn down deals as they should. And it's actually a quite a good benchmark of, of um, how, how good and impactful Sure. And, and kind of relevant and influential. I see. Yeah. If they're not just like yeah. accepting yeah. every offer. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, that's, that's something that influencers should be doing and there's so much potential revenue for influencers with a good engaged audience out there that they just don't need to be doing every brand deal. It's going to limit them. But what we look at typically is um, who are their audience? So we've obviously got demographic data, but uh, we've used over 100,000 different influencers. So, we built a bespoke CRM system that we have um, audience data uh, for every single influencer across all their channels. Then we look at um, actual kind of hard performance. So when we've used this influencer to um, include a trackable link in the last 10 Instagram story um, frames they did across 10 different clients for us, what was the average cost per click and how did that convert to you know, an app install, a registration, a, sure. stop, a subscription, whatever it might be? Sure. Um, but it also could be, a, you know, cost per impression, engagement, video view, some of the kind of softer vanity metrics, we call them. Um, so there's sort of a demographics element. There's a kind of hard performance element. And the only way you have that hard performance data is if you've run the campaign many times. You can't, right. do that, you, can't you know, you can't kind of estimate that based on mm-hmm. the number of engagements it looks like they mm-hmm. get to run the, the campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's obviously the more subjective, you know, are they actually right for the brand? Um, and that's something I've noticed in the U.S. is brands are even hotter on that in the U.S. than the U.K. in terms of, you know, is the influencer exactly on brand for us? Okay. Uh, looking right down their feed, making sure they've never posted anything that's... Inappropriate. Controversial. <laughs> right, controversial. Yeah, slightly off-brand. Or, sure. Um, and that, that is, to be honest, a very subjective thing. And you have to have people in your team who can really um, hone in on that and understand that from a, a less quantitative Um, basis.
0: Really interesting. One of the common frustrations I hear from marketers doing influencer marketing is the influencer part, just managing the influencers. You know, they can be really sometimes frustrating. They can be divas. So managing them can be quite challenging sometimes. What are some of the highs and lows of managing influencers?
1: (laughs) So we don't actually manage any, which is, uh, is one of the benefits of our model. Uh, that's not to say that we don't work with, you know, obviously we've worked with over a hundred thousand. So we, we do those challenges. But when we started, we realized that to make a, a scalable business model, we decided not to manage any specifically. And we decided not to work down the kind of software uh, platform route, which is what most influencer offerings are now. And they don't have, they don't differentiate from each other that enormously. So we're kind of pure agency model. We, do everything from identifying influencers to, you know, working out the campaign, creative and mechanic Mm -hmm. delivery and reporting and being Mm -hmm. the ROI. But yes, we have a team. Um, I mean the majority of people in our business, are campaign team. Um, and so they manage campaigns, they get given a a budget to work with and they have KPIs to hit. And, um, and so they're speaking to influencers day in, day out. And a huge part of it is managing those relationships. Sure, Uh, I think, I think another reason why we're different is that influencers shouldn't come first. Uh, and most influencer agencies and platforms and offerings are are influencer first, either because they manage influencers or because, um, you know, they're a platform and so they might take a rev share and, and, you know, they want as much money for influencers as possible because, you know, that's the model. Sure. We understood at the beginning, which again is why it's good that we came from the brand that, they're always going to be influencers out there, yeah. Like, and if you've got the brands and you're running the best campaigns for the right. brands, influencers are going to want to work with you. So sure. we've structured the agency in a way that delivers the best value for the brands, and it means that in terms of our relationship with influencers, they want to work with us because they want to work on the best campaigns. But we're not, you know, bestriding to them and. Because we've got almost more data on which influencers convert than the influencers, um, we actually can dictate the price in the market a lot as well. So really interesting. can say, "Oh, we want a thousand dollars for this YouTube integration," and we can say, mm, "Well, we know yeah, that you're not worth that." Fix, and yeah, we'll right. pay two hundred, and they sure they have to go with it. So again, it's it's a kind of um, it's a nuance that I think is is quite unique to us. I think there are also other things in terms of integration. It's just like paying quite you know reasonable payment terms in terms of how quickly you pay influencers mm-hmm. and when we started influencers would send us handwritten invoices um <laughs> a lot of them were like young kids and you know this was the first money they'd earned and it was well, that's
0: the thing what do they know about running a business i think it's, i think sometimes that's the concern also from parents but also from um you know government and sort of whoever else is trying to regulate the the industry that sometimes these young people can be taken advantage of by the brands and by organizations representing them because they haven't run businesses before. They've, they've grown a social audience, but monetizing that and the commercial side is a very different thing.
1: Exactly. And there are big opportunities as some management companies are showing around managing those influences and identifying the ones that they think are going to grow and, you know, helping them on everything from accounting and, um, You know how to how to invoice and how to manage the money that you're earning, and you know whether to do it full time Mm -hmm. or not. And so there are big opportunities there, and we have spoken about trying to um, take advantage of some of those. But um, it's it's just a completely different business model to ours. So I think Mm -hmm. we're we're going to try and focus on yeah, doing great work
0: makes sense. Where so so where are we going with influencers? How how big could this get? Because it feels as though the pace of change isn't slowing down. As you said, you know, our attention is moving more and more to social and devices. The more young people are growing up with devices, it, it, it's almost like so, you know, you look at an average household and you've got a TV, You know, older people are generally watching the TV and the younger people are, are watching devices. As they grow up, will they get to a point where they switch from their device to the to the Linear TV, as you talk, as you as you called it earlier, or do they continue with their device? and that obviously has huge implications to where advertising budget goes because that's where attention is. So where are we going with influencers and how big could this get?
1: Well, it can get it can get much bigger is the short answer. I think what we're seeing is that every uh, it used to be the case that you'd look in terms of advertising at different generations and you try and target them in a different way. And those different generations would be, you know, every twenty years, 10 mm-hmm. 30 years. And and now the big difference is that we're looking at those generational differences every two years, every three years max. If you look at the way an eight year old consumes content, it's completely different to the way an eleven year old consumes content. Really? Fifteen year old. Yeah. And so that really is the big shift. And it presents an enormous opportunity because you know what is the difference? just excuse my um, ignorance Difference is exactly that it's the way they consume content and what we've seen is just kind of more broadly about two years ago for acquisition campaigns with a, an audience of 30 and below we saw that snapchat um was our best performing platform or channel for driving conversions
0: hmm.
1: and similarly facebook obviously the facebook um Facebook ads platform is still incredibly powerful, but organic influencer content was very powerful as well. And, Hmm. you know, the publishers of this world were, you know, making a huge amount of revenue um, through programmatic and and through organic influencer content. And what we've seen is an enormous shift from those two platforms and Instagram stories emerged as Snapchat was kind of declining in, in its impact, but Instagram stories didn't convert at all. We were aware of it. It's like IGTV now. You're kind of aware mm-hmm. of it and you're testing it, but it's not mm-hmm. what you're investing in. And then suddenly, Instagram Stories started converting better and better. Mm. And the you know the Facebook ad platform starts becoming really effective when boosting Instagram content. And so it's a constantly imo- evolving kind of sure ecosystem um, mm. in terms of what works. And that essentially is dictated by not just the platforms and algorithmic changes, but also by what consumers are doing. So TikTok is a very good example. TikTok has, you know, a billion users globally and a um, billion plus. And it's it's a platform that... nowhere, almost. Yeah, yeah, most people haven't even heard of TikTok mm. in the US. And so what... There's such a big opportunity. We've been using Influence on TikTok for probably a couple of years even right. when Musical.ly um, kind of was acquired. And the issue initially was that there was no analytics. There was no way of proving ROI, but you could see things like live video views. And so you knew the value was amazing, but you couldn't see, you know, and um, couldn't. What, just, the imp- you couldn't quantify it or anything. Yeah. So now they've built out a, a much more detailed analytics platform. We've got beta access to their, their paid ad platform, and that's going to transform the way we would use that platform as marketers. But what we're also seeing is that the age group on TikTok used to be you know 13 and below and now it's massively shifting up to 18 and below 25 and below Mm. um and then when you look at the platforms kids are watching at home you know youtube is is enormous but there are so many emerging um content creation platforms but also just streaming platforms and um yeah new devices and really interesting so we have to be Right on top of what those consumer trends are how, how How worried do you think
0: Instagram is about TikTok and sort of how big do you think TikTok could get? because I mean, we've seen Snap sort of rise and then fall um, fall off a cliff recently. Could a similar thing happen to TikTok? Could Instagram sort of offer a TikTok alternative a TikTok alternative in the way that they killed
1: Snapchat, or do we see TikTok go in a different direction? I think TikTok fundamentally is a different platform to Instagram. I think I think Instagram um, Instagram will be worried about any emerging social platforms. Um, and TikTok are so big in Asia that it's not mm. it's not like Facebook acquiring Instagram. It's um, they're already such a huge kind of global social media giant. Huh. So. Um, They'll be worried, but I don't think there's there's not too much overlap in terms of the type of content consumers can create on the platform. Sure. Um, so we work with TikTok. They're actually a, one of our biggest clients, and we run acquisition campaigns for them to drive um, new users from other platforms. And so what's really interesting is using some of the biggest Instagram influencers um, to drive people to sign up to TikTok as part of our campaign. And what we learned was the most effective channel was uh, or kind of creative was using creators on Instagram to create very bespoke, unique styles and types of content on mm-hmm. TikTok and mm-hmm. share kind of little screenshots or teasers of that content on Instagram, um, pr- predominantly stories, and then um, include a call to action to go and follow them on TikTok. So I think that mechanic in itself shows that there's enough different about the, the way consumers can use the products. Mm-hmm. Um, to to mean that consumers want to follow influencers across both Hmm, really really
0: interesting final question before we get into our favorite questions towards the end of the interview that i ask all of my guests so you said at the beginning of the show that you want to sort of own the influencer marketing space as far as agencies are concerned and really sort of double down there and and own that space how how will you do that um i see your vlogs on on social i can see that you're also creating a a lot of content yourself What's the strategy to become the number one influencer marketing agency in the world
1: uh, i think I think that is one of our core objectives um, to be honest, I think we we're already um, kind of perceived as a real global leader in that space. I think maintaining that um, is a challenge um, and I think the key to that is making sure we're being incredibly innovative and um, kind of trying to take risks and lead the market in, in terms of identifying what what kind of campaigns are going to deliver value and, um, and make sure we're ahead of the curve. I think our overall um, overriding objective is um, become the global, globally leading social agency. Hmm. So we, we're seeing that um, in the context of what I said earlier about media agencies not typically delivering amazing value or at least the, the big kind of giants in that world Increasingly, we're getting big social briefs and marketers, as that shift from from TV to social happens, the, the social briefs are going to get bigger and bigger.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, at, at the moment, a lot of agencies will have a creative agency, a media agency, maybe a PR agency. Um, and what we're seeing increasingly is there there is a social agency in that mix. And even more increasingly, there's an influencer agency in that mix. Mm-hmm. And what we are... Uh, pitching for more and more is is being the social agency of record for those um, major brands, and then within that, we believe in an influencer first approach. Doesn't mean that an influencer first approach will be right forever. Mm-hmm. Right now, there is a real opportunity to to take advantage of the the content creation and. I guess, just the media value that influencers can create if it's right at the center of that strategy. So we love working with media agencies, not to say we don't. Um, we, in all our biggest all-agency meetings, we're with all those other agencies. But we're just trying to change the perception um, of decision makers and of marketers. Um, and, and for most of our campaigns, the, the hard numbers prove that. Nick, I know I only have you for a few more minutes, so let's
0: get into everyone's favourite questions at the back of the show. So these are the questions that I ask all of my guests, um, almost like a quick fire round, if you like. Yeah. Um, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience.
1: Ooh. Uh, oh. <laughs> God, we failed loads of times. <laughs> um, I think... Uh, well, even in the U S if I'm honest in our, in our U S office, I came over here just less than two years ago and Mm -hmm. we grew incredibly quickly and then we probably scaled a little too quickly. Um, and, uh, I essentially, um, went from kind of winning the U S business and and making sure everything was super high quality to managing a team and, and probably not, um, getting quite the right people in place at the right time and, Mm -hmm. Um, and then uh, we obviously kind of um, worked on fixing those issues, but there mm. were a couple of months where, you know, it was very apparent that that wasn't the right decision. Um, and that's happened at many stages across the growth. It's not just pure, um, you know, happiness and... <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's not just like happiness and light and yeah. ease. <laughs> it would be, it'd be foolish to say that. Right. There are a lot right. of moments along the way where we've sat down and thought, shit actually that wasn't the right thing to do right i think the key is is admitting it as early as possible and yeah. fixing it um and and yeah and, and kind of
0: cracking on and not letting it affect you what, what's been the hardest moment in the four years so far
1: the hardest moment um, biggest challenge i think some of the biggest challenges have been hr problems and okay. problem people yeah people probably um Mm -hmm. and you're just not ever i mean you're not trained to run a business ever but you're just not prepared for that when it happens and Mm. you know when you're in a room and someone's upset and you're having a difficult conversation and that there's nothing harder than that i'd say
0: Hmm. okay all right so the mentorship question now this is Coming to someone who's how, how old are you now? Twenty. 30, thirty. You're thirty. Okay, uh, but still oh. relatively young. <laughs> relatively young young founder. Tell us about your mentors. How do you? Where do you go for personal professional development? Who were some of your early mentors and
1: who guided your path to sort of where you are now? So I think my, I think my as a sort of inspirational person, my one of my granddads. Uh, is an amazing uh, Irishman and his personal story always inspired me. He came yeah. from Ireland um, from the countryside in Ireland and, and moved to London and started working on a London bus and uh, eventually uh, started working for a construction company and saved some money and ended up buying a, a machine and then set up a demolition company and basically just worked tirelessly, tirelessly to, to build that business. And I've, wow. I've kind of, witnessed that uh, that process while I was growing up he's written mm-hmm. now but he was still working on on his machines um, on the demolition site until he was you know 75 so wow that that's a he's always been a big inspiration so um, h- hard work and perseverance what yeah. what are the lessons there yeah hard work perseverance getting up in the middle of the night if you need to um, you know mm. really sort of old school values of, Mm. um, getting it done, doing it it for your family and making okay, table and remembering where you come from and all those kind of, um, in terms of, uh, mentors, uh, I think I've learned so much from different people I've worked with. I think, Mm. Ina, who's the the lady who had the, the life coaching consultancy taught me a lot about growing a smaller business, um, and sales principles, um you know we've got some mentors in the business like Aaron my business partner's dad um is is on our board and and is often very useful in advice because he's he's grown a successful business himself Mm. so yeah we're we're lucky that there's quite a few people we can we can go to we haven't gone down the sort of non-exec director route and fell on board with people who um we've spoken to a lot of people like that and very nearly gone down that route because we do believe that's very valuable maybe that's something we'll do in the future but it's not something yeah. just yet yeah. okay interesting books my favorite
0: question tell us about some of your favorite books fiction non-fiction yeah. markets marketing
1: related or or not whatever I think i'm going to disappoint you here and say that i really don't read much ah. <laughs> um, you- uh i think i'd be kind of pulling the wool over people's eyes if I just lifted some for the sake of it (laughs) and maybe that's uh, maybe that's an indication of the market that uh, that that you're in Uh, yeah like uh, market consumers we typically target probably not reading books either Uh, I'm a big podcast fan okay right so that's where you get your, your information yeah and even podcasts like how I built this yeah great you know fantastic inspirational stories of yeah leaders i was listening to the one this morning about the to buy or something that's the um shopify ceo okay hearing other people's stories um similar to this podcast is i find very helpful okay so aside from agency Deal Masters, what, what are the podcasts you subscribe um, to um there's quite a few well there's some good b2b ones yeah but there's also um To be honest, I just quite like some fictional ones. I like some documentary (laughs) ones. There's a really good one that BBC just did called The Crypto Queen, which is the story of one coin and a huge fraudulent um, cryptocurrency that was set up by um, a fascinating woman who's actually gone into hiding now. She's gone missing. Um, Yeah, I like... uh, you know, there's there's some very interesting ones where interesting people are just being interviewed yeah, yeah. on the sort of business side, like the Adam Buxton podcast yeah. or, or Rogan and those kind of things. OK, some, yeah. yeah, some good ones there. Yeah, uh,
0: what What's the most interesting thing people don't know about Nick Cook? <laughs> um, the most
1: interesting thing people don't know about Nick. I don't know really. It's, it's a daily vlog, <laughs> so we're pretty you know, transparent about. Yeah, you're transparent. About. It's but all I'm out there. Vlog the nearly as much as Aaron and Harry because right. I'm. Right. So. Okay. Don't know really. Probably. God, that was a tough question.
0: I mean, we'll uh... come back to it. We'll we'll ask you again when you're back on the show in a few years time. Yeah, maybe just start <laughs> in
1: New York for a year and a half. And uh, that's uh, a really good actually point. Actually, British. A lot of you, might... I'm American. Enjoying New York. Uh yeah, I'm loving New York. I was here yeah. for six months. I thought I could set up the US office and build a team, win clients and and then find someone to run the business in six yeah. months. And then I fell in love with <laughs> the US and realized that um not only was that not possible, but I also wanted to be here. So Oh wow, you're gonna yeah. stay. New York's a great city. Love New York. It is amazing. Beautiful, really, really nice. Uh Amazon Prime or Netflix? Oh, uh I'm gonna have to say Amazon Prime for reasons I'll okay. disclose. Okay that the, you can't disclose are they like a client of yours or something <laughs> <laughs> okay what are you
0: what are you watching that's good
1: um oh what am i watching that's good on i'm watching the crown at the moment which okay. uh, is a good one it is good actually. it makes me feel uh very british <laughs> out here in the u.s do you need that as a uh, Comfort. Occasionally, although yeah. after all the election uh, stuff oh, over gosh. the last few days, I'm quite happy, sort of. Yeah, that, to be honest. Right, right. Interesting. Uh,
0: cool. So, last couple of questions. If a millennial, and this probably happens to you quite often, actually, a millennial or a young person comes to you and asks you for some advice to get into the agency world or um,
1: start an agency, what advice do you give them? The main advice, which is based purely on personal experience, is, first of all, don't think that you're, you, there is no route in. But when I thought I wanted to be in the sports industry, for many years, I didn't even bother applying for any jobs because I thought everyone's applying for you know this internship or that internship. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, believe that those roles are very much there for the taking and to back yourself. Then I think to, to go through a kind of less traditional route of finding a potential role and just having as many conversations as possible. It doesn't even have to be with people who have job openings, just try and network and set up coffees and, and get out mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. I think be happy. A big thing I've noticed in the US as well as the UK is that a lot of young people just are not happy taking an internship or a low paid role initially and being a bit uncomfortable for that first few months. I know that's, you know, easy to say if you, you know, you're living at home in that city or mm. you've, you've got, you know, other opportunities, but mm. I think, I guess the overall thing is just bat yourself and believe that if you are in that position that you will progress quickly. And like mm. if you, you prove yourself, people will give you a job and they will pay you more and they will just make yourself Sort of integral to things um, as quickly as possible. Um, and, and then go for a role that obviously cliches that you're genuinely interested in because mm. so many people just don't. And, you know, you'll, if you back yourself and it's something you're interested in, you'll be good. Enough. Great, uh, great
0: advice. And my final question, Nick, what do you know about the world of influencer marketing today that you wish you knew when you first started the agency?
1: Interesting one. Well, I think that it's, it's changing so quickly that I'm not sure that anything that I do know today did <laughs> is back then. Right. Um, I guess just, I guess platform friends. Um, I think we did know that TikTok was going to become bigger, but okay. quite as big. Uh, same with Instagram. I think even we were surprised that some of the money that influencers, especially YouTubers, are able to drive. And so... You know, potentially there'd be opportunities around a, uh, a major management um, business running alongside what we do. Although, principally, we don't want to manage people because we yeah. want to be people who actually are better for the job, not who mm-hmm. we manage. So, mm-hmm. that's a, there's a question mark there. But yeah, that might be maybe just the, the potential scale. So we could we could have done it earlier and go even harder, but
0: we can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really interesting so you knew TikTok was going to be big relatively early
1: yeah and we actually advised um, another business uh, that we invested in to, uh, to manage TikTok influencers, they, they were going to start a management company and we said look TikTok is going to be huge once the analytics platform Yeah. Is. so go and sign the biggest TikTok talent in the world and, and you'll be in a good position and now we are in a good position so fantastic. Um,
0: but yeah. but for every TikTok, there must be so many other social
1: promising social platforms that you think, yeah, that
0: could be good, but then ultimately don't materialize into
1: anything. Yeah, absolutely. I think the advantage of TikTok it it was it was established. Like often, it's a good rule if there's even a business that's established and growing very quickly and and robust in in the Asian market, and then they come to the Western market. Often right, a good sign that you know there's a chance it could work. Right. So you know even if you look at clients of ours like makari and smart news and japanese owned businesses or um there are countless examples um yeah it's normally a good good sign a good sign nick thank you so much for doing this absolutely i really enjoyed it
0: absolute pleasure we have been speaking with nick cook he is currently the co-founder of the goats if you enjoyed this conversation then head over to apple Podcasts where you can listen to Over 40 such conversations we've had with world-class sales and marketing leaders. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn. Write to me at Nathan at AgencyDealMasters.com. Give us a review on iTunes. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Mageki is our booker slash project manager. Mariam Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters.